save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. We have been discussing the management practices in the U.S. of our wild carnivores, that the North American model of wildlife management is very biased toward livestock and vested interests of ranchers and hunters through fees, grazing on public lands, and carnivore killing contests. However, we have also discussed that the hunting fees collected have been steadily declining and that the vast majority of Americans prefer non-lethal means of controlling and managing carnivore conflicts, from coyotes to mountain lions and banning of killing contests for prizes. However, as we have learned over the last many conversations on this topic, outside of donating to NGOs who are focused on changing wildlife management practices, there is no overarching structure in place to collect fees or value-added taxes from the sales of outdoor gear or other consumer-related sales to outdoor recreation from wildlife watchers and everyday citizens to provide additional federal and public funding outside of our federal taxes for carnivore and non-game species management. So, at present, our main avenue of changing this management model is through formal legislation and citizen action. Today, my guest is Camilla Fox, founder and executive director of Project Coyote, a national nonprofit organization based in Northern California whose mission is to promote compassionate conservation and coexistence between people and wildlife through education, science, and advocacy. Their representatives, advisory board, members, and supporters include scientists, educators, ranchers, and citizen leaders who work together to change laws and policies to protect our native carnivores from abuse and mismanagement, and we advocate coexistence instead of killing. So, welcome, Camilla. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you again, Ellie. It's been a long time. We last had a conversation in 2014, and so much has happened since then. Indeed. It's been um, a wild ride. (laughs) That's a good way to put it, you know, not only in terms of all the work you've been doing, but in terms of our, you know, recent UN report of um, climate change and the IPBS UN report of the decline and um, let's call it crash of biodiversity, and that we don't have a lot of time to turn things around. We do have time to do it, but we have to start doing it now. So how about we start with a quick overview of the mission of Project Coyote? Sure. Well, you mentioned the mission of promoting coexistence between people and wildlife through education, science, and advocacy. And I started this organization 10 years ago. Um, We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. And I did so because I really saw a need for an organization that would be a voice for the most maligned, persecuted, and misunderstood predators of North America. Um, Not only a voice to help advocate on their behalf because they have no protections by state and federal agencies, but also to promote coexistence. Um, And that includes models for how we can peacefully and safely 
safely coexist with these carnivores, both in urban areas and rural areas. So that's really what we're all about. Um, we are national. Um, we've grown over the last 10 years. We have more than 60 people across the country who are involved in our efforts. And I'm looking forward to talking about some of our campaigns with you today. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to delving into that. So why don't we uh, do that right now? Um, There's also been a lot of changes over the last 10 years, and especially more recently, in the public attitudes toward wildlife and our unique carnivores and their roles within our landscapes, ecosystems, and overall biodiversity. So let's delve into some of the um, legislation actions that you're talking about, how we go about changing this model. Well, actually, before that, what I'd like to understand for our listeners again is that our wildlife management is geared toward game species, which are those that we like to use, hunt, kill, and eat, or trophy. And non-game species have a very different um, categorization in the NAM, the North American Model Wildlife uh, Management Model. So they're considered vermin. So let's talk about a little bit, if you can, highlight what is vermin, and and all the animals, these maligned ones that you're you're bringing a voice to. Let's let's just give a list. Sure. Well, so really when you look at classifications of different species, it does vary by state, but you mentioned non-game. And so in that category, frequently we see species like coyotes, foxes, sometimes uh, beaver, raccoon. Um, It can vary across the board, but the very name um, and classification of non-game I think is very reflective of the um, fact that most agencies do not put a lot of value behind these animals. Um, game animals such as deer, uh, um, elk. other kinds of uh, elk, exactly, um, sometimes bears, sometimes um, the larger uh, fauna, um, those are species that we deem valuable, and there's usually a season or a bag limit on them. Again, they're still hunted, um, and it's still a bias towards those who want to um, consume these animals in some capacity. We call it consumptive wildlife use and non-consumptive wildlife use. But the non-game species are really the ones that have no protections. And what that translates to is that frequently they can be killed 24-7 in unlimited numbers. So, for example, coyotes can be killed in at least 42 states um, year-round in unlimited numbers. And so, again, that's one of the reasons why I started this organization, to bring attention to that fact and attention to the fact that we now know through decades of research of how absolutely vital these species are, these North American uh, carnivore species to healthy ecosystems. And so there's this total disconnect with the fact that the research is reflective of the fact these animals are very, very important to healthy ecosystems, and yet our state laws and regulations and policies do not value them, do not provide any protections for them, and so they can be killed in unlimited numbers with very egregious ways. And in fact, they're also, correct me if I'm wrong, listed in a category of fur-bearing species, vermin, and you'd listed the coyote, which is the coyote coyote, I've always pronounced it coyote, um, as as vermin or pests, and they're listed under um, 
a lot of these states' management as such. So you had mentioned coyotes, foxes. There's also bobcats, mountain lions. You'd said beaver. There's prairie dogs. There's all sorts of these animals that are listed as non-game and therefore, as you said, have no value. So let's talk a little bit about their value and why the legislative work that you're working on in, in the, all the states across the continent um, to redefine, literally redefine our North American model of wildlife management to understand how critical carnivores are because they are given the very short stick in our models. Exactly. And so that, that is the disconnect. And we see this disconnect um, within our state wildlife agencies that continue to classify these animals, as we said, non-game or fur-bearing, um, sometimes nuisance uh, animals. And so with those classifications comes this um, unprotected status. And what that translates to is that these animals can be killed with almost any method imaginable. And our research has shown, you know, from poisoning to trapping to snaring to killing contests to a practice called penning where foxes and coyotes are put in uh, confined places and dogs, um, hunting dogs, are trained on them um, and literally can go and and maim and tear them up. Um, And it's legal under the law. Similarly, this last year, we um, exposed the fact that Coyotes and foxes in some states can be deliberately run over with snowmobiles and other vehicles legally, and that this is unfortunately a practice that is um, far too common in many Western states. Let's let's talk about this. Let's dig into it, killing contests. We've been focused on this for a while, but um, Project Coyote is uh, by far, and also Predator Defense with Brooks Fay, um, I learned from both of you that your two organizations are by far the most involved in exposing, you know, these wildlife and the crosshairs through films, documentaries, and your science uh, advisors, scientists, educators, you name it. So let's talk about what these killing contests, where they are, um, what they are, and as you'd said, and um, how we go about raising awareness in the public to realize what a killing contest is. I'm not sure a lot of people are even aware that in their state, this, this is continues. Yeah, well, and I give presentations all over the U.S., and it's one of the first questions I ask when I'm talking about this subject is, how many people have heard of wildlife killing contests? And invariably, very few hands go up, and that's even with the most educated um, audiences. So that is a huge issue that we're up against is the fact that people don't know that these are going on. Um, And for your listeners who don't know, wildlife killing contests uh, is basically a practice where um, different species, these unprotected species, are targeted. This includes coyotes, foxes, bobcats. Um, prairie dogs, uh, ravens, marmots, um, even wolves in some states where they've been been delisted, um, in particular Idaho, are targeted in these killing contests. The person who kills the most or the largest or even the most females um, are awarded prizes and cash. Um, And what we've really exposed is the fact that um, these are often largely under the radar because our state wildlife agencies are not monitoring them, and they're not monitoring them because these species, again, have no protections. And you don't need a permit 
either according to the Lacey Act or U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Correct. In a lot of states, you do not need any kind of permit. Um, and we can talk about also the fact that these go on on public lands and the debates around that. But just um, getting back to where these are happening. So from our research, um, unfortunately, these are happening all over the U.S., um, I will share that uh, California became the first state in 2014 to ban this practice, and we um, led that effort. We developed a coalition of conservation groups, wildlife conservation groups, animal protection organizations that worked together to expose this um, and then to put forth a rule before our California Fish and Game Commission to ban the practice. And it took about 18 months, um, and tens of thousands of California residents wrote, called, showed up and testified at commission meetings in support of the ban. And we finally, in December of 2014, convinced a majority of the commissioners to close the loopholes and uh, ban the awarding of prizes to kill uh, both fur-bearing and non-game animals in California. So you have legislation going on in several states, or you're working on bringing legislative change to ban killing contests in several states, Arizona, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Wisconsin, um, as you'd said, California. I don't see Colorado on your list, um, and I'm not sure what, I'm not even sure what the laws are on killing contests here. I believe they do go on. I know they're not protected. So let's, um, let's talk just a little bit about who is participating without denigrating a group of people, but who is it that is participating in these killing contests and, the, more importantly, the reason why? Well, I would say, um, I would say it's a very um, narrow uh, segment of the populace that participates in, in wildlife killing contests. And one of the things that we really expose is that this is very different from subsistence hunting, um, hunting to put meat on the table. In fact, we have many hunters who have uh, been outspoken against wildlife killing contests, believing that it's, um, that it's unethical and it's unjustifi- unjustifiable. So there is um, uh, this narrow segment of the population that, that does enjoy uh, basically gratuitous um, killing of wildlife for prizes and entertainment. Um, and we are trying to get into a little bit more of the psychology that drives this, because I think better understanding that will only help our campaigns to bring an end to it. But I will say that, uh, as I mentioned, we have found that these are happening all over the U.S., not just in the West, but also in the East. I also want to share that um, after California, uh, in 2018, Vermont passed a bill that bans um, coyote killing contests. So Vermont became the second state to ban the practice. And then just two months ago, uh, New Mexico became the third state. And that was, again, a coalition effort that was uh, 10 years in the making, four legislative sessions that it took to finally get that bill passed, um, and a fantastic coalition that Project Coyote and our friends in Animal Protection of New Mexico, um, Wild Earth Guardians, Center for Biological Diversity, multiple organizations working together to ban this practice. So with 
New Mexico doing it, we actually feel like um, now we have that energy building to uh, to start the domino effect. That's a that's a huge leap getting New Mexico on board. Um, I can understand that because it's kind of a cornerstone of this midwestern section of states of the West uh, and the Rocky Mountains, the tail end uh, to. Uh, change this. So I do want to say here that um, killing contests um, is, is kind of a thrill kill and um, it's different. It's not trophy hunting because the animals are not even disposed of properly. They're just kind of left. It's a wasteful taking. So um, and it's based a lot from my understanding on a myth that these animals are going to take people, ranchers, and hunters, um, ungulates, deer, elk, and the things they want to kill, the game species, or ranchers' livestock. Correct. And that was one of the um, issues that came out in California. So the proponents of killing contests that in California included the Farm Bureau, the Cattlemen's Association, the U.S. Sportsmen's Alliance, the NRA, They all had highly paid lobbyists who, at every single commission meeting where this was on the agenda, they were there defending this practice. And they were basically arguing that killing contests, particularly those targeting predators, were necessary to reduce conflicts between livestock and predators, to boost ungulate populations, so deer and elk for hunters, And then third, that killing contests were somehow effective in reducing coyote and other predator populations. And so that's when the commissioners came to us and said, Project Coyote, since you're leading this effort, how how do you respond to this? And so what we did was we, with our science advisory board that includes some of the most preeminent uh, wildlife scientists and canidae ethologists and ecologists in the country, We had them debunk each one of those arguments in a um, uh, peer-reviewed science sign-on letter that includes peer-reviewed science. And we put that before the commissioners, and that really was what got us our third vote, was that they saw that our arguments were based in science, that we refuted every single one of the arguments made by uh, killing contest proponents. And so since then, we've actually taken that science letter and we have obtained more than 70 scientists across North America to um, get behind that statement. And we have used it in other states where we are going after this practice. That's excellent. And is there, where, is there a place where the public can um, see that letter and understand further the science behind why we need to legislate against uh, or to stopping killing contests such as these? Absolutely. Let me just mention, too, that since we succeeded in banning this practice in California, we had several organizations that came to us and said, how do we do it? We want to ban this practice in our state. And so from that, we formed a national coalition. It's called the National Coalition to End Wildlife Killing Contests. We now have more than 30 uh, national and state organizations that are part of that. If you go to our homepage, projectcody.org, you'll see um, the icon for that national coalition 
on the right-hand side on our homepage. Just click on that, and then there's a whole page about this practice that includes that science uh, statement. Um, And so people can download that. They can read all those arguments. um, And there's a plethora of information on that page about this practice and, and how people can join our efforts to take action to end this. Excellent. So listeners, please go to projectcoyote.org. As Camilla just said, there is so much information um, on on the legislation they're doing, what they're trying to do, what they have accomplished, and even information about the animals that we're talking about. And I do want to highlight here that in discussing these issues, getting highly emotive and vitriolic on social media does not help. What we have to do is bring an intelligent and science-backed argument to the table. The one thing we all have in common here, the wildlife killing contests and the hunters and uh, wildlife advocates, is that we do want wildlife. Some want to kill it, some want to eat it, some want to be able to enjoy it visually when they're out in, in our national parks or on our public lands. So it's not just an issue about animal welfare and animal rights. That's something slightly different. It's, it's included. But this is a highly emotional issue, issue. But when we need to take action, we need to be talking intelligent, intelligently about this. And that's why we provide so much information on our website, on also the National Coalition to End Wildlife Killing Contest website. There are many links, um, and all of our information that we provide is science-based, backed with peer-reviewed science. So we think that's absolutely critical, and I think that's been one of the reasons why we've been so, so successful in the states where we've gone in to tackle this issue and similar issues, including trapping and poisoning um, because we approach our advocacy from this science-based approach and we encourage people to you know to use our materials so that um, when they're talking to their legislators and policymakers, they're also coming from a place with uh, peer-reviewed best science. That's excellent that's great to know. So um, we still got some time left here so how about we um, you had mentioned fur trapping and um, pesticides and this these are also some subject matter I'd like to get into. We've been discussing, and there's been a lot of news lately of the bobcats in north, excuse me, the mountain lions in northern California, uh, the collared ones of the the Living with Lions project, and others that have come up dead. The collars have um, sent out the mortality sig- signals, and when they were tested, both their livers and their brains were found, this is, I think, three lions now, at least, to have six different anticoagulant rodenticides, and it caused uh, internal bleeding. They're still saying that it is not conduce, uh, uh, con- or the Conclusive. Thank you. <laughs> Conclusive uh, science data that they were killed because of this. But let's talk a little bit about rodenticides, where they're coming from, and you know, beyond illegal grows and what they're doing, illegal marijuana grows, which is a huge part of it, but what they're doing in the ecosystem, the huge cascade of effects. Yes, it's um, it, it is a growing issue um, and issue of concern, not, not just for the target wildlife, but uh, for the non-target animals that are affected by these rodenticides. And this includes things like over-the-counter um, decon um, poisons that are readily available in in the U.S. And and what we're finding is that our research is showing 
that the secondary um, poisoning aspects of this are immense. Um, And what this means is that uh, predators, um, coyotes, bobcats, foxes, mountain lions, um, raptors, so owls and hawks, those animals that consume a poisoned rodent, be it a squirrel or a rat or a mouse, a gopher, they in turn are exposed to these poisons. And um, for example, uh, recently um, UCLA and the National Park Service and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, they have been researching um, this issue and the secondary exposure of these animals. And they found that up to 80% of native carnivore species um, uh, in California that include all the species I just mentioned, the bobcats, foxes, cougars, um, spotted owls, Pacific fisher, um, an imperiled species, and other endangered animals have been exposed to these rodenticides. Um, So we know now conclusively how uh, deleterious they are to non-target wildlife. Um, So because of that, we have, with a coalition in California, we have sponsored legislation to ban uh, second-generation rodenticides. Um, The bill is AB 1788. It is moving um, despite quite a bit of opposition from um, the pesticide industry and the agricultural industry. Um, We are uh, getting this bill through. and um, our hope is that just, just with the, uh, the killing contest issue, that California can be the first in the nation to ban um, second-generation rodenticides. So this and, is, th- it's a really important issue because we all think, oh, calling our local pest control to get rid of ants or mice and these kind of quote-unquote vermin and pests that um, we're not doing any damage. But what we have to realize is when the mice or the mouse or whatever it is we're um, spraying or using these pesticides against leaves our indoor habitat, it goes out there. And then it gets eaten by something. That gets eaten by something. That gets eaten by something else. So what happens are these rodenticides and these poisons build up from what I understand in the the top of the food chain the carnivore that eats the other carnivore or up to the top the the mountain lion so it builds up continuously to a point where all of a sudden it becomes catastrophic exactly so it's almost a, a cascading effect and you mentioned the um what we call uh, tertiary poisoning, which, um, for example, it was found in in, uh, Southern California in a mountain lion study, collared mountain lion that had um, uh, attacked and preyed on a coyote was poisoned, and it was believed that it was poisoned because the coyote had eaten a poisoned rat. So that's a tertiary impact of the mountain lion attacking, killing the coyote, and the coyote having been um, exposed to rodenticide from having eaten uh, a gopher or a rat. And it usually expresses itself in the liver um, of the, the uh, sick animal. And what we're really finding, too, is that there's the p- possibility of a, a correlation with the prevalence of mange in some of these species, including bobcats, um, possibly coyotes, where it's believed that because of their ingestion of the rodenticide, their, um, their immune system is compromised, and so that can lead to them being susceptible to things like mange, which can be fatal, ultimately. So this is a big part of 
you know, what hit the news recently was the UNIPBS um, biodiversity report that everything is crashing. And then before that, the uh, catastrophic decline in our insect populations. So we have to understand that what we do in using these pesticides and these rodenticides in our homes in our gardens, that they go somewhere and they end up getting out there in the wild, in our water, in our systems, polluting everything and eventually killing the very uh, animals and biodiversity that is responsible for keeping our ecosystems intact. So uh, folks, um, stay tuned because Camille and I have a lot more to discuss and we're going to step away for a short break. So stick with us. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World with my guest Camilla Fox of Project Coyote. So if you missed the first half of this uh, program, I do suggest you go back and listen to it because we've been covering uh, the topic of killing contests, uh, why they're important to get legislation and the work Project Coyote is doing across the continental United States to get these bands of killing contests for prizes and cash uh, stopped in the various states. Um, On this topic also, Project Coyote has done several uh, incredible documentary films. Uh, One of those that the most recent one is Killing Games, Wildlife in the Crosshairs. Camilla, tell us a little about about your documentary and your film work. Sure. So... um we produced this film after we prevailed on the, the issue of banning killing contests for uh, fur-bearing and non-game animals in California. Um, that was December of 2014. 
And after that, we did a lot of research on this practice across the U.S. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we found that it is prevalent um, across uh, all states. And <clears throat> we also realized that most people, including policymakers, have no idea that this is going on, that it's happening and that it's legal. And so in my years of advocacy, I have seen the power of film. Um, years ago, I produced a film called uh, Call of the Wild, The Truth Behind Trapping, to expose um, the fur trapping uh, industry in the U.S. And I have seen over the years just the power of what a film can do for a campaign. So, for example, Blackfish or The Cove that some of your listeners might be familiar with. Absolutely. Yeah. So we decided, knowing just, you know, the power of film and and how much it can raise public consciousness, that we wanted to produce um, a film about wildlife killing contests and so ultimately, uh, we produced a 30-minute and a 10-minute version of this film, and it's now, uh, it's been <clears throat> doing the film festival circuit. Um, we've won a few uh, short documentary um, awards, and I can share it was produced on a very low budget, um, but it really, it's, um, it's been a major tool and it's becoming a more significant tool with our National Coalition to End Wildlife Killing Contests. Um, so, um, so when- a, a question I have, it, um, I've done a lot of film fests. I'm a wildlife advocate. I have a foundation and um, you know, participate in Jackson Hole Wild Festival. And um, a lot of these films, like you mentioned, The Cove and Blackfish, they're very difficult to watch. So a lot of people just quickly go by it because they don't want to see. So part of the importance of these films um, is not so much to see the violence, but to understand the repercussions of the violence. Uh, So my question would be, um, if you could tell us a little bit about the film, where people can see it, where it's coming up, and how people could get to do a, a, a screening of the film. Sure, and just your comment about you know the the um, violent violent images exactly. So that you know, as someone who's um, gotten into filmmaking, not by any training, but just by default, because I realize the power of film, and I've I've taken it on and and actually love it. Um, one of the challenges, of course, I mean, my first film was around trapping, and then this one is around uh, killing contests was, you know, how much do we include of the gore and the ugly and the violence? And um, we tried very hard with this film to balance um, the, um, the difficult images with um, the breathtaking, beautiful images of these animals that are being targeted. So I will say from the feedback we've had that people um, love the film. Um, there's only one scene where you see a coyote being shot um, there are, you know, a few images of, of the body, the carcasses, because that is the reality of it. And you do have to show what is happening. So, but in general, I would say the feedback we've had has been tremendous. We've had um, uh, packed houses in so many states where we've shown this, um, which always amazes me that people, even with a title of, of Killing Games, Wildlife in the Crosshairs, that they want to come and see it. But I think it's because they're learning about it and they want, when they learn that it's legal in their state, they want to know what they can do. And that's really what this film is about, is it's about inspiring action. And it's it's a positive message because we are tracing how we actually um, prevailed on this issue in California and how we banned the practice. And then it's a call to action. It's a call to the other states, just as we've done with dogfighting and cockfighting, where we have banned that practice in every single state. 
our call to action is let's do the same thing to this um, unconscionable, unsupportable blood sport. Let's ban this practice across the U.S. So in answer to your question about where people can learn about it, if they go to our homepage, projectcoyote.org, we have a page just for this film. It lists all the areas where we're screening it. Um, so, And there's also a place where if people are interested in helping to organize and sponsor a screening in their state, they can fill out that form and, um, and work with us on that. That's great. Also on that page uh, on your website are other short little documentary films that you and various people who work with Project Coyote across the states um, short little clips, three-minute little clips that highlight the work you're doing and also not violent images, not gore, but even on Facebook or social media, we see worse. And uh, uh, of the hundreds of carcasses piled up in the back of a truck. And so many people are insistent on caring about the iconic species of Africa and lions over there without even understanding what's happening to our carnivores and how critical it is and how important it is for us, citizens of the United States, to take action and get involved. So even though there might be some gore to look at as Camilla said, the more uh, viable message here is the action we can take. So um, you have right now, or I think the deadline is today or tomorrow, um, but you do have uh, calls for action on your website. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so one of the other states um, that we're now working in to ban this practice is Arizona, and the Arizona Game and Fish has proposed a rule to ban the practice of wildlife killing contests. Um, So uh, I'm sorry to say that yesterday, Sunday, was the last day of the public comment period. Um, But that said, um, I encourage people to go to our homepage. They can see more about this proposed rule in Arizona. There's also similar action um, unfolding in Massachusetts, where their uh, state wildlife agency is starting to consider Um, a proposed ban, um, or at least starting the dialogue around it, because there's been such controversy after a coyote killing contest unfolded on on the Cape, of all places. Um, So, yeah, so I encourage people to to check out um, the different actions that are are underway. And our hope, as I mentioned before, just like dogfighting and cockfighting, that that was a state-by-state effort. And there were certain states that were the last holdouts. Um, ironically, New Mexico was one of the last holdouts for uh, for cockfighting. And, of course, we just banned um, killing contests there. So um, they're now a leader on that uh, that issue. But we do believe that that once this takes off, it becomes a domino effect. And, you know, now we have legislation in five states that are considering banning killing contests. And we never imagined when we started this campaign in 2014 that we would have state legislators coming to us to say, how do we do this? How did you do it there? Tell me what what bill I can um, propose. And, um, you know, so we're, we're excited that we actually think that in our lifetime we could ban this practice. And the film is critical to that that effort. That's great. I'm just, if, if I may, I'm just going to read um, the language in, I'm just going to pick at random, Arizona, the rule change to ban uh, killing contests. Is, is it all right if I read that out loud so that people understand what this is? Of course. It makes it unlawful. It's a rule change to Article 3, 
comma R12-4-303. So folks, you need to understand what legis- legislation is going on in your state and pay attention. So this one states it makes it unlawful to participate in, organize, promote, or solicit participation in a contest where a participant uses or intends to use any device or implement to capture or kill predatory animals or fur-bearing animals as defined under the section ARS 17-101. Contest means a competition among participants where participants must register or record entry and pay a fee and prizes or cash are awarded to winning or successful participants. So your um, legislation that you're trying to introduce to Arizona Fish and Game, um, they voted unanimously to move forward with this rule, yes? They have. So now, as I mentioned, there was just a public comment period. They will analyze those comments and then um, uh, a a body called the Government um, um, Regulatory Committee will analyze um, that proposed rule. And our hope is that um, they will adopt it and they will become the fourth state in the nation to uh, to ban the practice. So what is their, I'm curious, what is their practice in analyzing it? If we're looking at our U.S. Fish and Game and Wildlife Management as a sort of outmoded um, needing updating model and we're being analyzed. Do we have people in our system that are looking at wildlife and carnivores in this new uh, new way as, as important? Well, I think it, I think it very much... It varies by state in terms of process and who is doing the analysis. Um, this gets to a bigger issue of, of the challenges with state wildlife agencies and who serves on the commissions, which are generally appointed by our governors. Um, here in Arizona, this process is underway because there are certain legislators who basically put pressure on the Arizona Game and Fish Commission to consider this issue. So it, it was a, um, a uh, legislative um, um, mandate, if you will, for, for the state wildlife agency to consider it. And if they didn't consider it, then it would probably be legislated. So um, that is sometimes how this unfolds, is it's, uh, it's um, certain legislators that put pressure on the state wildlife agency to consider a certain issue. Um, and like I said, our, our, our belief and hope is that this will go through in Arizona and that it will continue to put pressure on states like Massachusetts that are considering this um, to, uh, to do that. So we, we have these two processes. One is the, the rules um, through the state wildlife agency and then, and then the legislation. And so we have this underway in a variety of states through those those different processes. Yeah, I'll list again um, the states that you're working in. There's um, Arizona that we just discussed, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Wisconsin, and uh, any others? Well, more, uh, recently, actually, Montana, um, Senator Mike Phillips put forth a bill that would have uh, banned killing contests for certain species. He was motivated to do that after um, an in-depth article uh, came out in the Mount, Mountain Journal um, about this practice. Um, that article also talked about the uh, legality of running over coyotes and foxes with snowmobiles. 
Um, and yeah, so we, sh- we shared that article. I believe the um, author was Ted Williams, and uh, he was a guest on our program. And I've also spoken with Mike Phillips of the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, but I don't want to digress into that right now. So, um, Yes, and actually it's Todd Wilkinson. Just, oh, I'm um, sorry. Yes, yes Todd it. Wilkinson. <laughs> um, we share his uh, articles all the time, and I share your newsletters all the time. So um, we've still got some time here. Um, Here's another thing. We didn't discuss it before our conversation, but we're seeing a lot more of our carnivores, coyotes, um, not so much bobcats, but coyotes and mountain lions in our urban areas. And um, it, it, part of that is because the deer are coming into our urban areas. And as much as people and hunters want to say uh, we need to build up the deer populations in the east the deer popul the deer the, there is an overabundance of deer and um, a lot of times in urban areas there is an over overabundance of deer coming into neighborhoods um, and of course what's going to follow them are you know coyotes bobcats and mountain lions and also uh, diseases, Lyme disease, tick-borne diseases, and these are threats to human health. So what can we do as people in more, I'm going to call it sub-rural neighborhoods, suburban that are where we've moved more into the wild, where we live more in the woods, where we live more and having crossed the boundaries where carnivores live as well. How do we... um, deal with these carnivores coming into our neighborhoods? What is it Project Coyote is doing toward that? So we have uh, two programs. One is one is called our Coyote Friendly Community Program, and then we have um, our Ranching with Wildlife Program. Both of those are oriented towards solutions of how we better coexist with North America's wild carnivores. Because, yes, as you mentioned, the reality is we are coming... Um, Uh, next to and into wildlife habitat where um, we are coming face-to-face with uh, a variety of different species from bears to mountain lions to wolves um, in various places, coyotes, foxes. For some people, that can be a very scary experience. Um, As we point out with coyotes, sometimes for urban dwellers, that's their first experience of coming face-to-face with um, a wild carnivore. And so there's understandably sometimes some visceral fear. So that's why we emphasize the need for education. Um, We work with a variety of cities and counties across the U.S. through our Coyote Friendly Community Program to adopt proactive solutions. And that emphasizes public education. It emphasizes reducing attractants in our neighborhoods, in in our individual homes, but also in our communities. Because sometimes, as we point out, you have one person who might be feeding wildlife and uh, attracting them, and then that becomes a problem for the whole community. A lot of people don't understand that. You know, when they go off and throw some bird seed out and want to attract wild turkeys or more birds or this, that, and the other thing, of the next person that that animal encounters may not be as wildlife friendly as the person who feeds the wildlife. So um, it's critical to understand feeding wildlife 
it usually ends up in dead wildlife. We have a bear aware program here in Aspen and all the bears come down. So I think it's also part of um, this modern culture of in the shift in the last couple of decades to a technology and living, uh, seeing and watching wildlife through documentaries on TV or through a screen or through a window versus out being out there in nature and encountering it. So as um, Camilla said, this fear, we, we need to work on this fear and understand that these wild animals, these carnivores do live with us. Tell us a little bit more about your wildlife friendly ranching program. So we work with a variety of, of farmers and ranchers to um, to basically help them mitigate negative encounters between livestock and predators. Um, historically, in the U.S., as I know you've covered and we covered back in 2014, historically in the U.S., uh, conflicts between livestock and predators have been handled by um, our federal government, an agency that we've discussed, USDA Wildlife Services. Unfortunately, their toolkit is largely lethal and largely indiscriminate, so that translates to snares, leg hole traps, aerial gunning, poisoning, and this has been sort of the norm for the last two centuries. Um, But again, what we know through science is that um, it's not generally effective in terms of reducing conflicts over the long term, and secondly, it doesn't look at uh, the ecology and the importance of predators in the ecosystem. So through our Ranching with Wildlife program, we work with ranchers and farmers to show them that there are better ways, there are more effective ways to reduce conflicts with a variety of non-lethal methods. Um, These include livestock guard animals, llamas, dogs, burros, um, uh, better fencing, night corrals, things like fladry. And some of these practices like fladry, which is the use of... um, Uh, basically um, red flags that were used back in uh, Europe um, to reduce conflicts between wolves and livestock. These kinds of practices have um, a long history worldwide for reducing these conflicts, um, including livestock guard animals. Llamas and alpacas have been used in South America to reduce conflicts for centuries. And in Africa, it's starting there with um, cheetah and lion conflict. Exactly. And so this, um, and when you mentioned that, there's a new device called a Foxlight, um, newer in the past five or six years, that is um, basically a LED light that is um, light activated, comes on at dawn and dusk, and it's um, put on a T-post of a, um, around a pasture corral. And um, it has been shown to be effective for reducing conflicts with uh, cheetahs, um, snow leopards in Nepal, Uh, elephants in Africa, more recently wolves in Idaho and Washington. Um, We're testing it here in Northern California with coyotes. And so these are some of the newer methods that um, are very simple. They're very inexpensive, um, but they're showing great efficacy. And ultimately, our our hope is that we can start to really shift this um, often at a local level. So we're a believer that if we can show and develop these models and methods and then scale them up, 
that is ultimately how we're going to shift away from this emphasis on lethal indiscriminate methods. Well, and I want to circle back because once again, the science has shown that when you do a killing contest or you remove all the coyotes or the lions from an area, you create a vacuum and someone is going to move in. You end up with more coyotes and other lions, dispersers. And the problem with that is, correct me if I'm wrong, the coyotes or the mountain lions that have been in the area that are let's say seldom conflict, are more attuned to staying away from uh, your your livestock or your homes or not having an impact. And the dispersers, the ones that come in, are have no history of participating in any of these non-lethal methods. So sometimes you get more livestock killing and more conflict from the new guys in town. Exactly. Very well, well put. Um, so that's what we know through research is, is that with, um, for example, with coyotes, when you have an undisturbed family group, um, generally it's the alpha uh, pair that do the breeding and the provisioning, um, and they create a stable uh, territory. When you remove one of those alphas, you destabilize the family group. And so what that translates to is often the younger females start breeding at a younger age. um, And other coyotes from around the area come and fill in that vacant niche. And some of those um, younger animals, like you said, are inexperienced. And they have not learned from the adults of what is is the right dinner and what's the wrong dinner. And... um, and so you're ultimately disrupting that cultural um, history and that cultural learning. And that's where we know that with mountain lions and with coyotes, those younger juveniles often will go for the novel prey, the, the lamb or the, um, the calf. And that's why, from just purely an ecological perspective, these non-lethal methods work with the um, ecology of these animals and that's why they have better results over the long term to really mitigate conflicts. This is incredible information and there's one last little bit uh, we mentioned at the beginning of the program that we haven't quite discussed yet which is uh, working in California to ban uh, trapping of fur bearing animals and um, this is a bit of a contentious uh, uh, topic but let's talk about that and why it's necessary. Well, I will share that um, California became the first state to ban bobcat trapping uh, two years ago, and that resulted from enormous controversy over bobcats being trapped out around Joshua Tree National Park in Southern California. Um, There was a number of families of bobcats um, where the um, residents of the area had come to know And then there were uh, a couple of trappers who were basically um, trapping out the entire bobcat population from that region. So those people reached out to a a number of organizations in California, including Project Coyote, and said, help us. What can we do? We're concerned about um, our bobcats in this area. So we, again, as a coalition, we worked on legislation and then... um, Uh, and then an effort through the Fish and Game Commission to ultimately prohibit bobcat trapping statewide. Um, We also, during that campaign, we showed that 
with the international fur market, um, a bobcat pelt was uh, getting up to $1,500 on the international fur market with China and Europe being a major um, buyer of uh, North America's um, bobcat pelts. So huge issue and, and huge push um, and demand for, um, for these pelts because of that high value. So because of that, ultimately, the commission did vote um, in support of banning bobcat trapping. Um, and again, that was a grassroots effort with um, thousands of Californias, Californians weighing in to say that we don't want our bobcats trapped for um, fur trim and uh, fur coats. And now um, there is a bill, uh, AB 273 in California, that would um, seal the deal on commercial and recreational trapping and end and the, the practice permanently. And it would be, we would become the first state to do that. So part of this, it's not so much about the livelihood of trappers. Let's say you watch The Last Alaskans or something like that who depend upon uh, their trap lines for survival and subsistence. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is, as Camilla just said, our iconic species ending up as trim in China and the illegal markets and the illicit trade of wildlife trafficking. So are, does Project Coyote get involved in stopping the demand campaigns? Well, there's another bill in California right now. It's AB 44, and that would uh, ban the um, sale and manufacture of fur products in California. So Project Coyote is working on that bill with our partners at the Humane Society of the United States and other organizations. And we really believe that these bills, um, the trapping bill, AB 273, and the fur bill, AB 44, that they go hand in hand because one is targeting the egregious ways that we kill animals for the international fur trade. Um, and then the other one uh, basically targets um, the manufacture and the demand. And again, we believe that California is often the, the leader on these issues as we were with killing contests, um, lead ammo and uh, bobcat trapping. And um, we're hopeful, especially with um Governor uh, Newsom in power now. He had a very strong animal platform when he was campaigning. Um, we do believe that uh, that we can and will become the first states to ban these practices. But well, we need people to take action if they live in California. Absolutely. We need people to take action in every state. So once again, I strongly urge our listeners to visit projectcoyote.org. There is a wealth of information on the species, on the bills, on the legislation, how you can donate to keep their work going, the scientific data and research on their Take Action page, and get involved, educate. The biggest thing here is we need to educate people on what is happening to our biodiversity, the collapse, and what we can do as individuals through our state legislation to change these practices and the models of our North American wildlife management to consider and realize and be cognizant that our carnivores are a critical part of this biodiversity and the ecosystems of the United States of America and further. Uh, so, Camilla, unfortunately, we're out of time today. I can't thank you enough. This has been a fascinating conversation. 
Thank you so much for having me. You bet. And folks, uh, go to their website and look at their variety of short documentaries. And as Camilla had said, uh, Killing Games, Wildlife in the Crosshairs has a list of screenings coming up in 2019 at various festivals. And if you'd like to have a screening in your state or your town, or if you want to take action and uh, if you've become aware of... uh, killing contests or you want to become involved in taking effective action uh, with a ranch or your home or your neighborhood, please contact uh, Project Coyote and they can help you with that. So once again, thank you, Camilla. Thank you. Wonderful to be on your show again. Thank you. I I really appreciate the information. So folks, uh, that's our wild world for today. So step out into your wild world and see what's out there. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 